Open our eyes. I'm pretty excited about this. We're in Matthew 20 to 22. Pastor Derek was filling in for me last week because my daughter was having a medical crisis. She's home now and uh, resting. Cindy's been up there. But uh, last week, Pastor Derek did a masterful job getting us started in Matthew 20. There's this story of the landowner that went out and hired people early in the morning, and then again three hours later, and then again, then again, then again, and then a few right at the end of the day. And uh, then he just uh, paid them all exactly the same thing. Um, uh, It's a parable where Jesus exposes our feelings of it's not fair, and he compares them to God's way of looking at fairness. And uh, what we found is that our way of thinking about fairness is so inadequate and yet so persistent, and that God is so fair and so much more than that. He's kind and he's compassionate and he's generous and he covers the entire tab for all our sin and he doesn't treat us all equally. He's lavish with everyone in just what they need and our it isn't fair comment shows how little we know God or how little we trust God to be fair without, without our help. So last week, the story that Jesus told, while he's on this intentional pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, it starts in Matthew 16, but he is faced towards Jerusalem. He knows that he's going there to suffer and to die. It's not coming as a surprise to him. And this story is really in response to a person that he met along the way, somebody who came running up to him who was youthful and wealthy and powerful. We call him the rich young ruler. And he presents himself in Matthew 19, and he's asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It was and still is a very good question. And Jesus says to him and the situation, he said, well, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler said, well, I have since birth. Now, that sounds pretty precocious, but Jesus doesn't refute it. In fact, one of the Gospels tells us Jesus looked at him at that point and loved him and realized that he had one thing standing in his way that was holding him back, one idol that was keeping him from following God with all his heart. And he realized it was his things, his possessions. And Jesus said to him, well, then go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. Well... At that point, uh, this young person had to make a decision, and they ended up walking away sad because he had stuff. He had lots of stuff, and he loved his stuff. And he decided in that moment that he loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus. He loved his stuff more than he loved a relationship with Jesus. He loved his stuff more than eternal life in heaven with God. So he clutched his stuff to his heart and he let Christ go on his way. And Peter had watched this whole interaction. And then Peter said to Jesus, hey, what about us? It's in Matthew 19, 27, kind of a loose translation, I guess, but it says, then Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What about us? What's going to happen to us? What about us? Why do we always make it about us? It's like we're the center of the universe, like we're the most important person or, or something, and uh, that it's all revolving around us. And Peter says, what about us, Jesus? It cost us everything to follow you. What about us? Okay, so we didn't have as much money as that guy, and we didn't have as much power as he does either or influence in other people's lives. We don't seem as smooth with words as he's able to talk, and we don't have all the luxuries that he has, but we did give up everything to follow you, Jesus. Is that going to work in our favor compared to, you know, people like that guy? 
uh, the people of money and influence and ability in this world? And Jesus gives this great response. So you have to go whip back a page to Matthew 19, verse 28. And it says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man, which is his favorite name for himself, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Here you have Jesus, who's God in human flesh, and he's setting out the order of the coming kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. It's really the reign of God in people's lives. Jesus is the ultimate authority on everything, you see, and he puts himself at the head of the line to pay for all the damages that sin have caused in this world. It's not his bill, but he's paying it anyway. This includes dying to self and following God's plan. Jesus was the first and the biggest and the best example of this. He left heaven to live here. And he came here to die as the sacrifice for human sin. And he's headed to Jerusalem to fulfill God's plan in the scriptures to die for the sin of the world. Yours and mine. So you have Jesus. But then you have the world with its agenda to live apart from God in rebellion against God that thinks you get to the pinnacle of your excess by amassing power or money or more resources or more everything by lording it over other people, climbing your way to the top, even if you have to step on other people's heads on the way up. And then you have the disciples who were born into the way of this world, but they were called to the way of Christ, and they have said yes to the way of Christ, but then they struggle with believing what Christ says or thinking like Christ or living like Christ, similar to how people study, struggle with learning a second language. It's not second nature to them. They still think in their original tongue. I've managed to get very poor grades in Spanish, French, Hebrew, and Greek, besides English. And, you know, they just don't come as second nature. You still think in your original tongue. You never lose the accent of an outsider. It's a daily struggle to think and speak and respond in the new way. Can you see there's a conflict between these two? They both can't win, the way of Christ and the way of the world. They both can't win in your life. They will constantly grind against one another in tension. Similar to our California landscape. You know, on the surface, everything looks peaceful most of the time. And then it rocks and rolls. It shimmers and shakes. It rumbles and tumbles with an earthquake. Why? California's famous for its earthquakes. This is caused by forces miles below the surface that are pushing, pushing, pushing on each other. Two massive plates slamming into each other. The Pacific Plate, which is uh, completely under the whole Pacific Ocean and right up to the edge of California, and the North American Plate, which is the whole continent and uh, into the Atlantic Ocean. And if you Google earthquakes, you will find that these two plates are pushing against each other, and the primary boundary between them is the San Andreas Fault, which runs you know, right up along the grapevine. And uh, the San Andreas Fault is more than 650 miles long and um, at depths of up to 10 miles. 
And then there's other smaller faults off of it, like the uh, um, Hayward uh, Fault in Northern California or the San Jacinto Fault here in Southern California. But the Pacific Plate grinds northwestward past the North American Plate at a rate of about two inches a year. And parts of the San Andreas Fault adapt And so you have a little bit of creep. So you have modest earthquakes along the way, but there's places that don't. And so as the pressure grows, 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 until finally, I mean, hundreds of years could go by, and then you have these great big quakes that finally release. Bang. Well, we want to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we want to believe in Christ and think like Christ and submit our will to Christ and to speak like Christ and respond like Christ and be Christ to the people around us. This means we begin to live by the values of Christ's kingdom now, not when we get to heaven. Jesus said, be in the world, but not of the world. But somehow we've got this, it's not fair, and what about us stuck in our craw? And we forget Or we fail to see that Jesus is good and he's kind and he's gracious and he's generous and way beyond fair and he has all authority. And we should just listen to him and do what he tells us. And we really should just let go of our little doubts and our fears and follow him. So we have this deep internal spiritual struggle going on between the way of Christ versus our own natural promote ourselves to number one. So there will be slippage and creep and tremors and foundation shaking quakes in this internal massive spiritual struggle. The way of the world or the way of Christ, you can't choose both. Peter felt the pressure. Hey, what about us? And Peter's not the only disciple that was thinking that way that day. We'll see that in just a moment. But when pride and selfishness surface and go unchecked in our hearts, we revert to thinking in the old nature, the self-centered, put-me-first nature. And it's ugly. After Cindy and I were married, we were living on the East Coast working a job in a large camp, but we really felt called to be in pastoral ministry and we really wanted to be back in California. And we felt that God was directing us when we received a call to pastor at a church in Visalia. So we arrived there, newly married, without hardly two nickels to rub together. And oh, a Dodge Colt with 137,000 miles on it that we hoped kept running forever. All right. And a man in the church rented us a house. And we were getting started in ministry, getting to know people. There was one young couple in particular we'd made good friends with. And then two months later, the same person came to us and said, you know, I own another house and it's closer to the church and it just uh, was vacated and I was thinking of selling it. Would you like to buy it? And I said, oh, that's a great idea, but I don't have any money to put down for a house. He says, well, I'll tell you what. I will sell it to you at a bargain price and I'll sell it to you for nothing down and I will carry the mortgage myself. And I said, hallelujah, it's a deal. Thank you, thank you, thank you and thank you God. And then I go home to talk to Cindy about it and I shared it with Cindy and she was thoughtful because that's Cindy and she wondered if we were ever, if we were getting in over our heads And then she rejoiced exceedingly with great joy with me. Yay! And so we moved into the house and we went to our friends and we shared with this young couple in the church that we had gotten to know the good news that, that, uh, which come, and their reaction completely surprised us. I was expecting them to say, Praise God, you've been so blessed. We're so happy for you. It's good to have you here. Instead, they said, It's not fair. That's not fair. We've been working hard, paying rent, struggling to make ends meet. Nobody ever offered us a house for nothing down. What about us? 
It's not fair, what about us? Took a big bite out of that friendship that day. It was never the same after that because they got their eyes off of Jesus and his care for them and they eyed someone else's blessings and it made them resentful and bitter. See, Peter and the other disciples have been listening to Jesus. They've responded to Jesus. They've chosen to be his disciples. They've walked with him. They've seen the miracles. They've heard him preaching for three years. Even in the group of 12 disciples, he chose three, Peter and two brothers, James and John, and he has given them special treatment, more mentoring, more coaching, more sharing his thoughts, more opportunities to see Jesus up close and personal than anyone else. And Jesus is presenting an approach to approach life, a way to approach life that is in conflict with the way the world approaches life. And he's talked about it every day. Put God in charge of your heart and your life and follow him and let him be the boss of your life. He would still say that to us today. And where we pick the story up in Matthew 20, Jesus is giving his disciples a view into the future, his future, their future, Look at Matthew 20, verse 17. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. Now, they're on a busy highway. There are thousands of pilgrims all headed up to Jerusalem for the Passover. It happened every year, and some people go every year. And so he takes them aside because he wants to just talk to his fully devoted followers on the way. And he said to them, verse 18, see, which I kind of a little triggered something for me since our theme is open your eyes. And the word here is look. Or see, in other words, open your eyes. We are going to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Open your eyes, Jesus says, look. I mean, it draws our attention. It's preparation to see better, to understand, to comprehend more. You ever do preparation phrases like that? Honey, I want to tell you something. I don't want you to solve it. I just want you to listen. It's a preparation phrase. Um, I'm about to tell you something. I hope I have your full attention. Those kinds of things. That's what Jesus is saying here. Look, here's what we're doing. What, I mean, they're headed with all these other pilgrims to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, which is a, a regular remembering God's miraculous deliverance from slavery into freedom. Well, what a contrast. God did this miraculous deliverance and they celebrate it and Jesus is going to the very place where they celebrate it to die, to be arrested, to go under a trial, to be condemned, to be mocked, to be scourged and to be put on a cross and die. This is the ultimate rejection by the very people he came to save. He came to his own but his own did not receive him. And crucifixion was normally the method uh, used for death of slaves or of criminals, bad guys. And then Jesus says he will be raised on the third day. He doesn't do it himself. The resurrection is thought to be the activity of God the Father, repudiating the actions of the world, bringing back alive the Savior of the world after he's paid the full price. This is like Passover plus. Because Passover is this whole picture of the angel of death passes over and because of God's care and protection, you are saved from the punishment of your own sin. But the disciples didn't get it. You see, what about us would have actually been a pretty good question at that point, wouldn't it? To say, I'm associated with you, Jesus, and you've just told us you're going to go and be arrested and then put to death. What about us? 
guilt by association. I think they should have been doing better listening, better believing, better preparation, like make a will, hug and say goodbye to your loved ones, expect to die alongside of Jesus in Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus had warned them before. If you go back a few pages to Matthew 16, they're way up at the top end of the country. Jesus has been preaching, doing miracles. They're up in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave him a bunch of different things. And then he said, who do you say? And Peter spoke for the group and said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you're blessed, Peter. You didn't come up with that by yourself. And he takes the next moment to say, and now we're headed to Jerusalem where I will suffer and die and be killed. But on the third day, rise again. And Peter tried to be bold and to rebuke Jesus, said, no, 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 that's not the plan. And Jesus turned around and said to this guy who he said, just had finished saying you are blessed by God with insight, said to him, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand the things of God, but only the things of man. They left Caesarea Philippi. They stopped in Galilee on their way down to Jerusalem as they were heading south. And it says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This is the second warning. And they will kill him, will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So you know what they did? They got into an argument of who was going to be the greatest. It's totally ridiculous. And Jesus kept saying the same thing. Just ahead was suffering, death, burial, resurrection. But it's like they weren't listening or he was speaking gibberish or another foreign language. They just didn't get it or respond appropriately. He is going to die a gruesome death. And they are thinking about positions of power and prestige. They couldn't be further off the mark. Recently, I visited somebody in the hospital who had just gotten some very stunning news, bad news for them. They said that they had been told by the doctor, do you know your life could be over very suddenly? I know you're young. I know you're not expecting this, but something could happen and you just, you're going to be gone. And they put on Facebook, doctors just gave me the news that my life could end abruptly at any moment. Well, they had one of their friends, a friend from college, a Christian friend, a friendly, beautiful, chatty, ditzy friend from college who always seemed to not listen well, always seemed to get her foot in her mouth. She responded on Facebook. She said, good to hear from you. I just became a Mary Kay consultant. Wondered if you needed any cosmetics. <laughs> so what, for my corpse? Jesus has just given the strongest indication possible that he's intentionally, voluntarily headed to a path of great pain, suffering, humiliation, and death to save the world. And he's invited the disciples, come travel with me. And look what happens next. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your kingdom. Wow. Wow. Jesus has just taught that there's no place for, for pride or self-seeking in the life in which he's calling them. They're called to seek first the kingdom of God and that everything else would fall in place and that you put Christ first in your life in everything and you serve Christ by serving others and somehow they have failed to learn the lesson. These two are the other two besides Peter who are in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. John was the one that Jesus called himself the disciple Jesus loved. 
he leaned on Jesus at the Last Supper so he could whisper in his ear. They were, these were the three that were invited up the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus glorified. They saw Moses and Elijah, huge figures from the past, show up to be with Jesus in that moment, and they're there. And now their mom is bringing them before Jesus, getting down on her knees to beg for them to be given the two most honored positions alongside of Jesus in the coming kingdom. This is a complete epic fail to understand the most basic thrust of Jesus' life and teaching. Where have they been for the last three years? This is an error of the heart of what service in the kingdom of Christ really means. This is basically trying to implant, to bring with you all the values of the world and thrust them into the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. So they've completely missed what Jesus is wanting to do and what he's to be about. Now, Jesus had this group of women who always seemed to be around the disciples taking care of the details, the food, the clothing, the shelter, paying the bills, whatever was needed. And these are the same ones that later are at the foot of the cross. If you look right at the cross stories in Matthew and Mark and in John, you will find there are four women and they're named and different details are given about them. And the mother of the sons of Zebedee is in that circle of four women. They are there at the foot of the cross to comfort Mother Mary as she watches her son die on the cross. And if you read the names and the descriptions, you deduce that the, uh, the uh, James and John's mother is named Salome. She's probably the sister of Jesus' mother Mary. So Salome's life has been turned upside down by Jesus. I'm guessing that Mary was Salome's older sister, but life changed for all of them, not just for Mary on the day when the angel Gabriel came calling to announce that you are going to bear the Christ child. And Mary ended up marrying Joseph and giving birth to Jesus. And then the Bible lists that she had four other sons, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, plus some daughters. And they lived in Nazareth. And Salome married a fisherman named Zebedee and, uh, who lived and worked on the Sea of Galilee. And the Bible tells us they have two sons that we know about, James and John. Well, Jesus comes along one day as he's beginning his ministry when the James and John are grown and they're working with their dad in the family fishing business, which has grown prosperous enough to need to hire uh, hired hams and uh, they're on board. And Jesus comes along and points to the two of them, invites them to come and to leave the business and to go with him to do itinerant ministry. And they did. They left their families and their business that day. They left uh, the, their wives and children if they had them and they traveled with Jesus for the next three years. We know, we can guess that this placed additional burdens on Salome. I mean, did she have to do more grandchild care now and fill in for the missing parent? Was she filling in on the boat? Was she cleaning fishing nets? Was she comforting Zebedee in the loss of his fishing buddies, his sons? I mean, Salome and some of the women have supported Jesus' ministry, and she's present with the disciples as they're taking this trek from Galilee down to Jericho and then up to the city of Jerusalem. She's heard a lot of Jesus preaching. She's seen a lot of the miracles. And she believes that his new, he is the new king in the new kingdom that he's going to set up, even though he's done surprisingly few preparations from what she can tell. I mean, where's the army? Where's the war chest of funds? Who's organizing all the volunteers and supporters when Jesus says, let's go? But <coughs> she believes that he's going to be the king in the new kingdom and she believes that it's eminent and she probably sees it as an act of faith. Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. It is going to happen. When that happens, 
and probably soon. Can you put my two sons, you know, the ones you call the sons of thunder, because they're bold and they're boisterous and they're hardworking and they're diligent. They are the ones that you've given special treatment your whole ministry. Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, promise me my two boys will be one on each side of you, right and your left, in the places of privilege and status and honor and power. Jesus, what about us? What's going to happen to us? Tell you what, Jesus, before you answer that, we don't even know your answer. Why don't you just bless our answer? Come in your kingdom, put my boys number one and number two. We've been with you since the beginning. We've done our time. We've risked it all. We've loved you. We've served you. We've given you everything. How about it, Jesus? Verse 22, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, yeah, yeah, we're able. Now notice how much thought they gave to that before they made their commitment. Yep, we could drink it. We're up to the task. They want to be recognized as important, powerful players in the kingdom of God. And they want to bring with them the values of power, status, and influence from the world. Jesus' values and kingdom are not like the world. They do not mix. Now, a cup is always a symbol in the Bible of suffering, of judgment, of retribution, uh, and sometimes a symbol of the wrath of God. And Jesus even prayed in his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, let this cup pass from me if it's possible. So he says to them in this moment, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, if you study their story, you know that James and John did drink of the cup and pay a huge price. James was the first martyr among the disciples. The church was barely out of the gate in the book of Acts, Acts 12, when James was suddenly arrested and put to death in prison. It helped to spark other believers saying, we got to get out of Jerusalem, and they took the gospel all around the world. His brother John was the one that Jesus had tasked at the cross, please take care of Mother Mary, and he did. And uh, he ends up being the final survivor of the 12 disciples. And he suffered on the island of Patmos where he had a vision of Christ and he wrote the book of Revelation. He wrote other books about loving one another and he's the only disciple who died of natural causes, died of old age. Well, verse 24, when the other 10 disciples heard the request that James and John had made, they were indignant at the two brothers. <laughs> of course they were. Because they were trying to sound pious and humble, and you know, they were indignant that they hadn't thought of it first, that they, excuse me, push and shove, let me get to the front of the line to say, can I be first? Jesus, make me the most important. And they wanted to be there before Salome and James and John and, you know, get themselves in line. And we know from a previous encounter that all the disciples had gotten arguing about, well, which of us should be really considered the most important? Have you thought of me? Me, me, me. It's not fair. What about us, Jesus? And Jesus has a great response. In fact, we're going to get to it next week. <laughs> so you can read ahead, okay? But in conclusion, we want Jesus to open our eyes, to help us to see with godly insight, with spiritual perception. And the first step is to get your eyes off yourself, off your own agenda, and onto Jesus. See? Jesus said, verse 18, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, 
to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He's giving them a lot more details this time that he's gonna, it's going to be because of the chief priests and scribes. They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles, the Roman overlords, who are going to do the dirty work. And then on the third day, he will rise from the dead. Do you see what Jesus wants us to see? The only reason you'd voluntarily choose the path that leads to condemnation and mockery and hardship and harassment and death is because that's the path that Jesus chose and you are fully devoted to following him. The only reason Jesus chose that path himself was to fully follow the will of the Father in heaven who loves you so much that he sent Jesus to suffer and die in your place so that your debt of sin could be paid in full. The world values status and self-advancement and power. The way of Jesus is servanthood and submission and self-sacrifice for the good of others. And they are in conflict with one another. And only one will win. So it's good to ask ourselves today in reflection, where has the world's ideas crept into our thinking, into our decision-making, into our actions? Where can we see that the world has is is become our way since it's our natural language, it's our natural way? And the way of Christ is that second language, the thing that we're learning and struggling to say, how do I live over here? What about instead of saying, what about us? We would pray, thy will be done, which is what Jesus prayed in the garden. Thy will be done. That's a prayer and an attitude of submission that God can bless and can use. And it will help answer the big quest, important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It will put God first in your life and he will take care of you. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we could find ourselves all over this story. Men and women self-promoting wanting to get ahead, using the way of the world, covering it with Jesus language and Jesus songs and Jesus talk and Jesus prayers. So convict us today, we pray, that we truly would let go of the way of the world and fully adopt the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That we would live up to what you have called us to be and to do we would go where you want us to go, say what you want us to say. We would be fully committed to you. Thank you that you took this downward path of pain and suffering so that God could do the miracle of forgiving our sin and setting us free. We love you. Thanks for loving us.